1: Hello and welcome to a new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. In his shining new book, The Medieval Islamic Hospital, Medicine, Religion and Charity, Ahmad Raghab, Assistant Professor of Religion and Science at Harvard Divinity School, charts the institutional and intellectual history of hospitals or Bimaristan's in medieval Egypt and the Levant, a central argument of this book is that hospitals in Islamdom were more than just institutions where the sick were treated. Hospitals also served as important sites of communal services and congregation as urban architectural monuments, and as symbols and expressions of a ruler's political authority by exploring an astonishing variety and number of sources. Raghab provides an unparalleled window into the aspirations and operations that defined the medieval Islamic hospital. This splendid new book will be of great interest to students of medieval Islamic history, religion and science, medical history, and the study of Islam and religion more broadly. Here now is my conversation with Professor Ahmad Raghab. Hello Ahmad, how are you doing?
0: Hi, Shirley. Ali. Thank you so much for um, taking the time to speak with me today.
1: Well, my pleasure. Uh, really appreciated uh, this book, as I mentioned to you before we went live. Uh, this is uh, such an interesting and important topic that not much has been written about. So this was quite a revelation and the kind of uh, painstaking research you've done is very obvious from the pages of your book. Okay. So we have a tradition on new books in Islamic studies that our first question is always biographical. Ahmed, could you share a bit with our listeners uh, your story, how did you become a scholar of Islam and Muslim societies? Um, so my
0: interest in Islamic studies and, and in the study of Islam in general came through um, history of science and history of knowledge. I was trained as a physician in Egypt, and um, after that I started working on a PhD on history of medicine in uh, in Paris. And during my study of history of medicine and history of hospitals, I started to um, become more and more aware of the importance of connecting or, under, or studying science as um, uh, as part of the um, of society in general, and connecting it to the different intellectual currents. Particularly when we're talking about the medieval and early modern period, which led me into uh, thinking more uh, about Islamic studies and about different kind of um, of uh, concerns that we work on
1: when I'm we think about, about the study, study of Muslim, Muslim societies. So let's begin with a sort of more basic question, which is, uh, what what is an Islamic hospital? And uh, what kind of an intervention that you have you tried to make in this field of Islamic hospitals? One of the main arguments that you make in this book is that you're trying to rethink this very category and ways in which it has been approached in the past by scholars. So could you uh, say a bit about this category and the kind of intervention that you see yourself making through this book?
0: So, I would say that in general, if we want to, and, and this is how really I, I start thinking in the book uh, with a sort of an operat, uh, operative definition of what Islamic hospitals are, I would say that these are collective uh, sites of collective medical care that uh, care primarily for patients, but not necessarily exclusively so, and that uh, flourished in most of the Muslim cities and urban centers from probably the 9th century into the. 19th century, to the extent that, became, that they became a fixture of uh, urban life in these societies throughout these 10 centuries. Um, I, think I think the, the Islamic household we, we start the book with is, I would say, uh, is quite different from the one that we emerge with at the end of the book. Or at least that's what I tried to do. Um, the book what tries to, to question, question, first of, of all, uh, or question questions really three really important, important things about the Category of Islamic hospitals. The first is the coherence of the category, that there isn't one single Islamic hospital that we could paint or think about throughout this entire period, but also even in any given period throughout the entire geography of. These Islamic societies. So the book proposes that we have at least two major models that emerge from two different origins one of them that dominated the medical scene in Iraq and Iran, and the other that was more common in Egypt and the Levant. And um, although there is a lot of communication between these two models and a lot of cross interactions between them. I try to locate the hospital in the in its own geography and its uh, own social context, which always creates different expectations and therefore different traditions of um, hospital making if you will in these different geographies. The second point is about the um, Exclusive medical nature of the hospital, which has been a consistent theme in um, previous scholarship, and one of the reasons why Islamic hospitals were such an attractive, although understudied topic in the history of hospitals in general, that they were seen as exclusively medical. They, um, for instance, they didn't offer uh, charities for poor who are not sick. They were focused primarily on the sick, and they were always staffed by, by physicians physician at the time, humoral and galenic physicians. I argue in the book that this focus, this medical nature, is actually a function of um, inclusion rather than exclusion, in the sense that there's no evidence that anybody was turned away from the hospital because they were no, not sick and they were only hungry or tired. But because these hospitals emerged and flourished within a network of charity that included mosques and khanakas and different and other organizations and institutions that supported the poor, we became, um, or these hospitals were able to primarily focus on um, the sick. And therefore, it is... um, It is their presence within a network of charity, within all these other charitable organizations and, um, I'm sorry, charitable institutions and establishments that did not function or focus on medicine. It is because of these institutions that they emerged as less exclusively medical. And the third thing that I try to investigate in the book is the type of medical practice in the hospital, and I make arguments about how it is connected but quite different from practice outside the hospital.
1: So, what were some of the earliest uh, Islamic hospitals and uh, what kind of uh, precedents from the late antique uh, tradition, late antiquity tradition rather, uh, did they build on these earliest Islamic hospitals? Could you tell us a bit about some key institutions and uh, what were they modeled on?
0: So, that's an excellent question. There has been quite a, a debate about the quote unquote the first Islamic hospital, which I think, like a lot of debates about first things, will almost never be resolved. Um, In the book I argue that there is evidence uh, that um, says or or shows that there were small sites of collective charitable care and infirmaries built under the Umayyads in the major Umayyad centers in Damascus, Jerusalem, Al-Fustat in Egypt, so mainly in Egypt and the Levant, and these were largely uh, emulating Sort of Byzantine centers and inheriting Byzantine centers, where the Byzantines regularly built these infirmaries close to big cathedrals and monasteries and so on um, in the ninth century and well in the late eighth and early ninth century, under the Abbasids, we see a new uh, new institutions that are built in uh, Iraq in particular, and these institutions are uh, modeled on uh, Syriac Sassanid institutions that existed in the region before Islam, basically, in from late antiquity, really. And um, these institutions, or these were actually a part of uh, a patronage practice that the Abbasids inherited, along with a lot of other patronage practices that they inherited from the Sassanids. So these were um, acts of patronage directed to their own physicians and their own clients, medical clients. Um, So, in in general, we see that the Levantine and Egyptian hospitals were built on the tradition of uh, Byzantine institutions which were connected to either the empire or the church, and in the case of Islamic institutions, they were largely connected to rulers and sovereigns in the different polities in the region, Uh, um, they were big institutions comparatively. Uh, And um, they focused on providing charity, uh, or or focused primarily on charity, although they had obviously a medical nature, as we described. Um, In the uh, Iraq and Iran uh, context, these were institutions inherited from a Syriac Sassanic tradition, and uh, they were primarily acts of patronage directed to the physicians. They were largely small, not as important. Important in terms, in terms of fashioning the image of the, of the ruler, ruler, but, but important, important for, for the physicians, physicians themselves. themselves, and, and uh, uh, focused uh, primarily on medical, medical care. And, um, again, led, led by, by the physicians, as opposed to the, the organ to the institutions built in, built in Egypt and the Levant.
1: Now, one of the uh, very fascinating arguments that you make in this book is that uh, these Islamic hospitals were also architectural monuments, which played uh, an important political function. These uh, bimaristans, uh, as they were called, so. Uh, could you say a bit about that architectural dimension and how were these uh, urban monuments uh, uh, used and mobilized for the assemblage of political authority and the way in which uh, the contemporaneous political rulers used these for their own self-presentation as pious Muslim uh, rulers uh, at a given time and place?
0: Right. So the thinking about the architecture of the hospital allows us to, again, further embed them within their own context. Um, The hospitals that we see in um, the surviving hospitals today that we see, for instance, in Egypt and the Lebanon, are truly huge monuments um, that were built by powerful and important rulers. And in part, they were actually, what I argue is that they were built as, they were part and parcel of an architectural program or of the architectural programs of these rulers and sovereigns that were connected to their empire-building strategies, if you will. So let's take the example of someone like Nuruddin Zanki, for instance, who had a a prominent architectural program in Aleppo and then in Damascus as he fashioned each of the two cities as a center of his emerging empire uh, when first Aleppo was the capital and then Damascus. And at the heart of these architectural programs in each of the two cities, he built a hospital. And the hospital, along with a number of other institutions and mosques and madrasas that he built, were part of creating his own image as a pious ruler, but also as a great ruler who would be able to establish these huge charitable um, monuments or charitable establishments that would benefit his um, his people. The same happens with Salahuddin when he puts... Um, when he um, sort of is able to take over the Fatimid empire and, and, um, and knows the Fatimid caliphate completely part of his actions in order to um, sort of erase the legacy of the Fatimid's in their own capital, in their own caliphal capital, is an architectural strategy that aims at changing the architectural landscape of Cairo, making it into the Ayyubid Cairo that will be quite different with a wall, with a settle, and so on. And part of this strategy was also to dismantle the big monuments of the Fatimids, which included their palaces, for instance, at the center of the city, where Saladin uh, al gave them uh, to some of his, um, to some of his generals, and he chose one of the most beautiful holes of these palaces, a hole built by Modine, one of the more beautiful ones, uh, to make it into a hospital. Now, this particular act is is actually extremely significant because this is the caliphate palace, this is where the Fatimid imams were buried, and a, a region that was essentially off limits for poor people, except in very specific occasions, Um, and now it is the center for poor people as they come and flock to the big, new, big hospital that Din is building. He built another one in Alexandria for the service of pilgrims going to Jerusalem and going to Mecca, again, on his way of establishing himself as the uh, person who would basically support and protect pilgrims. The same happens with Qalawon, who builds a huge monument in Cairo, um, it's big hospital in 1285, which the book focuses on more than uh, any other hospital. But in all these cases, what we see is that these hospitals are part and parcel of these political projects and of these architectural programs that symbolized these projects on the ground.
1: Let us talk a bit about the administration and management of these Bimaristans. And one of the most instructive things that you accomplish in this book is your uh, reading of a very fascinating reading of Wakf documents, which tell us a lot about how did these administrators imagine the functions and objectives of these Bimaristans. So could you tell, uh, talk a bit about uh, about that aspect of your book, the administration of these Bimaristans? The, uh, that's, that's a great, a great question. question. I, I think, think the... the um, so, so the, the Wakf
0: documents, documents obviously, obviously is, is, um, don't tell us, us about... about the day-to-day, day-to-day practices. They, they tell, tell us about, about the ideal picture of what, of what the practice, practice should look like. So it is not, not... I, I don't look, look at it as... as a, um, as an indication of how the daily activities of the Pumaristan took place. But it showed us, as you mentioned, the priorities of these administrators, what they thought the hospital ideally should be doing. And here again, there is a quite a significant divergence between these two models that I described earlier, the Eastern or sort of a model, Iranian-Iraqi model, and the model in Egypt and the Levant. And I, you can see this through uh, a comparison between the lo- document of uh, Rashid al-Din Tabib, uh, uh, Bimaristan that he built um, in, in Iran, and the Bimaristan, contemporary Bimaristan built by Mansur Qalawun in Cairo in 1285. Um, while uh, Rashid al-Din Tabib, uh, uh, Bimaristan, focused on the Waqf document, focused primarily on the medical education, setting limits for, or the, for the time that these uh, students can spend in the hospital, focused on the actual medical supplies there, uh, the salaries for the physicians and so on, and determined these in details, and paid largely little attention to the maintenance of the organization itself, apart from few stipulations to make sure that peasants don't migrate and leave the lands that they are um, sort of farming. Khaloun's hospital in Cairo was primarily focused on the administra- on the on the maintenance of the institution itself. So its main focus was the administration. Basically, the document paid a lot of attention to how the administration is structured, how much it is paid, how it is paid comparative to any other. Um, institution of that size and it was the biggest in the country at the time, so presumably it's the people at the top of this organization were the highest paid in the entire Mamluk Empire for some time and it focused also on the infrastructure that supported patients in terms of uh, beds, walls uh, covers, types of food, even things to cover the food so that it protects it from flies and so on and finally, it paid, started to pay attention to physicians and medical supplies. Now, I, I don't argue that these administrators imagine the hospital functioning without physicians. However, this very clear uh, priority setting that they do in the WAC document shows how they think about the hospital. As primarily a charitable institution that wants to support the poor that wants to maintain an active role and active intervention in the lives of the poor and not only uh, a medical organization or a medical institution. And that shows actually in even in the biographies that we see later on a couple of centuries uh, or sort of in the 14th and 15th and centuries and beyond that the big physicians, the important physicians which are uh, highly paid um, come to these hospitals to work only as a form of charity because simply hospitals are unable to afford them. And all hospitals are talking, people writing about hospitals are always talking about their inability to pay physicians decent salaries. And we have numbers of salaries that show that they are compared to salaries that physicians would make in the court, for instance, are really... Um, almost almost negligible. negligible. And again, because, because these, these hospitals, hospitals perceive the role as, as largely, largely part of this, this large charitable, charitable network that, that we talked about in these cities at the time. Mm-hmm.
1: Let us talk a bit about these uh, physicians. And you uh, in very interesting ways shows that uh, many of these major physicians were also doct- uh, were also scholars in their own right. So we could call them scholar doctors in many ways. Uh, So, Who who were some of these major physicians? Um, You focus on a a few uh, and one in particular. And uh, what are some of the key features of their intellectual, the texts that they're reading, the kinds of discourses and discussions they're having? Could you uh, say a bit? I know you spend a lot of time on this in your book, so it's a bit unfair to ask you one (laughs) question here. But if you could give us some highlights of who these people were, what they were reading and the kinds of intellectual networks that we that we're talking about here.
0: Right, so, right. so I, I argue in the book, book or I trace in
1: the book, a particular, particular circle of physicians that formed
0: around uh, al-Bimeristan and Muri in Damascus, and that came to dominate the uh, medical practice in Egypt and the Levant under the Mamluks for a few centuries to follow. And basically, their students came to dominate not only hospital practice, but also other forms of medical, at least elite medical practice, that is medical practice directed to richer clients. Um, the, the, uh, this circle, which I call in the book the Dakhwar Circle, um, because it is around or was the most prominent figure, was Muhammad al Din al Dakhwar, who was a physician that served in, uh, that died in the first half of the, tw- of the 13th century, and that served in Al Bimaristan al Muri, but also was a very important figure in the Ayyubid, um, uh, in the Zangid and then Ayyubid courts of the period. Uh, he himself was a student of Ibn al-Mutran, a known physician. We know a lot of, about his writings. And Ibn al-Mutran was a student of Muhadda al-Din al-Naqash, where this story actually, or this genealogy starts. And Naqash was recruited by nur al-Din Zenki when he built al and in Nuri, was recruited from Baghdad to come and supervise the uh, establishment of this new institution. And Naqash himself descends from a long line of prominent Bimaristan physicians in Baghdad, uh, and his direct teacher was Ibn al-Tilmid Again, I don't want to say too many names, but Ibn al-Tilmid was, again, a very famous and important physician in his own right, and built a whole tradition in Baghdad, and served in a lot of hospitals. So, al Naqash left from Baghdad to Damascus, created a new genealogy in Damascus around the Bimaristan and Nuri, of which the Khwar became the most important figure. He brought with him, first of all, a discursive understanding and appreciation of the project of the Bimaristan. That is to say, how the, what role the Bimaristan plays in the life of the physician. This was mixed or interacted with the charitable role, the highlighted charitable role that hospitals played in the Levant and Egypt, and allowed for these Bimaristans to become the charitable cornerstone of the practices of these important physicians moving forward. He also brought with him a number of important texts or editions uh, and recensions of texts that were not known in the Levant before. So, for instance, we see in this circle the emergence of a book like Al-Hawi, and Al-Hawi is, was composed by Abu Bakr razi a couple of centuries, two centuries before, was Quite well known, but it was known to be um, basically an amalgamation of all his pamphlets and writings that was collected by his students after his death. Completely useless and, and very, very difficult to deal with. Yet the copy that we see, or the new recension of this volume that we see with this particular group, is quite different because it is organized according to body uh, body part, and it is actually the edition that we have in our hands today not the original uh, uh, edition that presumably emerged after Razi's death. So this is one example of these new books that they are bringing, or sort of new recensions of books, new ordering of the intellectual environment, which all aim to serve a particular emphasis on practice as opposed to theory. So um, Razi's book become, in this new recension, um, a primary reference book for practice, Um, it is organized along uh, body parts, they are able to reference it and go back to it. We have, for instance, a new book that is attributed to Arazi, although there is no way of knowing whether it was indeed composed by Arazi, but it is a collection of cases, Um, and it is the largest collection of cases that we have, and it is produced during the same period by another physician who claims to be copying it from manuscripts by Arazi, And again, this is a sign of the emergence of new case writing that these physicians engage in. Very few of them actually survive because they were seen as practical texts that they worked with and then presumably didn't really care enough to preserve, except for major things like Abrazi's cases. But it shows a new intellectual orientation for these physicians that focuses now on practice, that understands the importance of observation, um, and of physical examination in order to uh, diagnose, and that pays a lot of attention to diseases as separate categories that can be treated by specific medication. So the focus now is on to cure a disease as opposed to treat a patient, which has, which has been the ethos of galenic practice for a very long time. So I would argue that this particular period and this specific circle we, we could, could trace this development of focus, focus on practice, focus on, on diseases as categories, and, categories and, and focus on physical examination to this, this circle and the, the literature that, that they produced and they that produced and they edited and, and uh, rearranged.
1: So let us uh, shift our focus now to the patients. Um, and uh, the latter half of your book talks in great detail about uh, uh, the lives of the patients in these Bimaristan's. Uh, so first of all, what are the different kinds of people who who were housed at these bimaristans? Who went there? And I think the reader is quite surprised to find out that the the kinds of people uh, who go who went to these bimaristans actually is quite different from how we imagine that category of patient today uh, in, from our modern eyes. Uh, right. And and you know, and you also talk a lot about the kinds of interactions they had with the physicians uh, at the bimaristan. So could you say a bit about? The people who went there, the inter- their interactions with the physicians, and also what might it ha- might it have been like for these patients to spend a day uh, uh, at the Mimaristan? So, um,
0: so th- uh, first, to think about the the types of patients that we're looking at. Um, First you're right i mean the, the 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 hospital at the time or the Bimaristan was quite different from what we think about uh, as a hospital today um It was not a place that it was a place that people tried essentially to avoid. People would go to the Bimaristan only if they really have to and um the bimaristan was also able to dispense drugs so and medication so people could go and be examined in the bimaristan and receive medications for free and take them home and at certain times the bimaristan would actually send even the medications to people in their homes and therefore anyone who could afford To stay at home, meaning that anyone who had some form of family care or was able to care for themselves in one way or another would actually stay in their own homes and just go to the Bimaristan to be examined and to receive medications. And as such... In any given day, if we are right, if we stand right now in the middle of the courtyard of a, a 13th century or a 14th century Bimaristan, the majority of the people that we will encounter are actually people who would not stay in the Bimaristan. Are actually what I call in the book "prescription seekers," if you will, people who would come, be examined by the physicians, um, have certain medications prescribed, and would take these medications either from the Bimaristans a um, sort of herbalist or pharmacist or from another herbalist close to the Bermerset. Um, Courtyards were very crowded. Uh, they were full of these people, um, sick people, um, mostly carried by or taken care uh, of by their relatives, but in many cases also relatives of sick people who are coming to describe the conditions of their loved ones and um, take the medications or prescriptions from the Bimaristan. Now, if we move beyond this group and look at the other people who are actually, who really compose the minority of the, if you will, the day traffic in the Bimaristan, but those who are staying in the Bimaristan in its holes. and um, we find a slightly different population. One group, which stands to be a very prominent and important group, is what I call in the book, the clients of the charity network itself. So these are people, when we look at their biographies, they normally live in the mosques, for instance. Um, they are either, some of them are uh, what we would call Sufis or mystics or Mujawiri, or, or, you know, they, they spend large parts of their lives in the mosques or in the Khanakas or in madrasas. Some of them don't work at all. Others work very, Um, sort of little jobs that support their lives, like copying, like carrying water, uh, helping students and helping professors and so on. Um, These people frequent the Bimaristan quite a bit. They don't have a family to care for them, and therefore, whenever they are sick, they have to be at the Bimaristan. And in many cases, we find them staying and then later on dying in one of these Big sites of the charity network again: uh, uh, a madbakh or a kitchen, um, um, a mosque or a bimaristan. So that's that's a significant group there. Uh, that is a more not necessarily significant in terms of number, but really a more stable population that you one would probably encounter over and over again in these areas, centers of cities where we see the parts of this charity network. Um, we have obviously, um, groups of what I call in the book, the urban poor. And I call them the urban poor because this is not really about or necessarily about lack of money, uh, but primarily because they work in very specific urban, uh, uh, professions which are very fragile professions, like for instance, water sellers, um, and these, profi- or uh, blacksmith working in the town, or cooks. Now, these professions do not, do not, they pay well. So these people have, on, maybe have enough to support themselves on a daily basis. But they rely largely on physical power. They are very volatile. And so whenever they fall in sick, um, they are in, in, they suddenly become extremely poor and unable to care for themselves. And therefore, they end up in these Bimmer stands. So, and within this population, we find other subcategories that are not, again, not necessarily poor, like travelers, for instance. So, Bimaristans stands became very important sites for travelers. Now, these, again, might be actually quite well off in their own original countries, but as they pass through big cities on their way to pilgrimage or other travels, um, they are threatened by. The unpredictability of uh, life on on the road, if you will, or life as a traveler, you are one pickpocket away from an extreme poverty and hospitals. And of course, they don't have families to care for them as well. So even if they have money, some of maybe not enough to hire a servant, and therefore they end up in the hospital. Students are also a very important subcategory of this group of this urban population that relies on these charitable. Uh, in organizations or establishments to survive and then we have a population of, of the mad uh, or the mentally disturbed who were uh, normally kept in a separate part of the hospital and we have um, a lot of um, significant evidence and accounts about how normally these people end in the hospital only when their conditions are extremely bad. So we find accounts of of the mad or the mentally disturbed being well-dressed or well-spoken as always something that would surprise our authors. So whenever our authors are in the hospital and they see a mentally disturbed person who can speak well or who is well-dressed, this becomes extremely um, surprising. The reason is most of these mad who are locked in the hospital are usually ones who became too difficult to deal with outside and therefore end up in um, inside the hospital. Um, and, you know, so basically we have these different groups of people. We have obviously, finally, a group of chronic patients who are either disabled, um, chronically ill, and who stay for a long time in the hospital. And these are normally groups that physicians did not like as much, precisely because they kept occupying the beds for a long time. Uh, But again, they were a significant or a good part of the population of the hospital, as long as they were not able to depend on other um, institutions of charity around.
1: So, Ahmed, as we're coming to the end of our time, uh, could you share with us uh, what's the next project? What are you working on these days?
0: So I'm working on a a new monograph about the history of prophetic medicine. Um, As as you and and some of our listeners probably know, uh, prophetic medicine uh, is also a topic that is largely understudied and it has been seen in um, um, some scholarship as a response to Galenic or Greek practice. Um, In this book, I actually trace it to be rather a way of, uh, that actually played the role in, the popularization of, of Greek medicine and um, ancient sciences, and I try to link it and put it in uh, um, sort of within the framework of the development of hadith and uh, seerah,
1: and how it is part of the making of this pietistic discourse around the life of the Prophet. The Medieval Islamic Hospital by Ahmad Raghab, published by Cambridge University Press in 2015. Uh, Thank you so much, Ahmed, for such a wonderful book, a truly interdisciplinary masterpiece in so many ways, combining intellectual history study of medicine, architecture, political authority. So you've done some fascinating and brilliant work here. So thank you so much for this book. And thank you so much for your time uh, today. Really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. Thank
0: Thank you. Thank you very much.
1: So this was my conversation with Professor Ahmad Raghab about his brilliant new book, The Medieval Islamic Hospital. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies and please also join us next time for another fresh episode. Until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Stay well and keep listening to New Books in Islamic Studies.